The passage for today is coming from Matthew 24, verses 1 through 8. Uh, the translation is ESV. I will give you a second uh, to turn there on the stream and in person, and then we will read. All right. The Word of God says this, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Good morning. It's good to see so many of us back. I was thinking earlier this week that it's nearly two years since we were able to have all of our uh, children's ministry in person. Uh, if you get a chance uh, and your kids are in our children's ministry, please, please, please say something to Samantha. She and her team and, and the other teachers, she and her team have held together our children's ministry and it's just, it's a joy to have everybody back in person and to worship with you all today. Before we dive into our teaching time this week, let me take just a moment to talk with us as family uh, about masks and about where we are with masks as a, uh, as a family. As you are aware, the federal and the local governments are loosening their mask requirements as they have assessed that the risk in our areas is low. That really is something to celebrate. I think we ought to be really excited that after only two years, the case numbers are going down as well as the impact that uh, COVID has on those who wind up getting sick. We are watching those numbers and watching that risk. Session just met this last week. And we've decided that while we are glad to see that the world is a little less dangerous, we've decided that for now, we're gonna hold ourselves to a little bit um, higher standard. And we've always done that. We've had the CDC uh, guidance as a minimum requirement. So you've noticed that a couple of times I've exempted myself from coming, even though me and my family had met the minimum requirements. We did that because we really want to, all of us, embody the second commandment to love our neighbor as ourself. For some people in our country, it almost seems like wearing a mask is what? It's, it's purely for me. It's uh, for my personal protection so that I don't catch something from you. And that does have some validity. Don't want to knock that. There is this other side, however, and that is that I wear a mask for your protection so that you don't catch something from me. And that's important for us. The Lord has blessed us as a community here at Renewal with several people not going to out anyone, but it's not one or two. We have several people here who are either at risk themselves or uh, they come in contact with people who are at risk regardless of what the risk factor is. So even though the danger is less, it hasn't gone away completely. 
and we feel, the session feels, that there is wisdom while we're still on the edge of the winter months to say, we're just going to keep wearing masks during the Sunday morning service. Toward the end of the month, we'll reevaluate. Oddly enough, I got an email this past week, actually my son got an email this past week from his college that pretty much said the same thing, that they want to maintain an environment that is conducive to serving the largest number of people for now, and so they're going to continue with their indoor mask policy and reevaluate at the end of the month. I expect that as renewal, uh, at some point we will move toward what? Mask recommended maybe before mask optional, but for now, for the sake of others, we want to ask you to please continue wearing a mask through the service. We are starting a new Sunday morning teaching series today. And it has to do with this period of time that we live in. And it's a time that scripture refers to in a number of ways. Calls it the last days, the end times, the end of the ages, or as in our passage, verse 3, the end of the age. It's a way of saying that there is something about our age, our period of time on this planet, that marks it as different from all the rest of history. Something that set it apart from everything that came afterward. And that's because something happened to our world when Jesus came the first time. When that happened, something from the outside world broke into this world when he was born, something that became established as he lived, died, and was resurrected. And now that something is here, and its presence signals that one day it's going to bring an end to everything that we're used to. That it's going to usher in a totally new reality, a new creation. That God will judge evil completely, remake the world, the entire universe will be new. But not until Jesus returns. And so you and I now live where? We live between the ages, between Jesus' first and his second comings in the last days. And that's the subject of what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 24 and 25. It's the last days. He talked about this not so that you could put a date on the calendar as to when he'll return, but so that you would have a sense of what these times are actually like that you live in, and so that you would have a sense of how to go about living in them. Now the catalyst for this conversation from today's passage is in verse 1. I want to give you a little bit of background here. Jesus just entered Jerusalem for the Passover feast a couple days earlier. You know the story. He came in riding on a donkey. The crowds cheered him. He went to the temple, to the temple courts, only to discover they'd been turned to this outdoor market. People are buying and selling sacrifices. They're changing money for offerings. And Jesus drove out everyone who was buying and selling. He left the city that night to spend the night elsewhere, returned the next day, and he started teaching. And there are chapter after chapter after chapter of his teachings. He wrapped up everything that he had to say with a rebuke to the religious leaders, and he ends that rebuke with a stunning announcement that their house, the temple, is now left to them desolate. It is now deserted. It's now empty. It is utterly without meaning for them. That's the background that it goes into our passage today. Jesus left the temple, verse 1, after declaring that it was now desolate, and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Now make sure you got the contrast. Jesus just said the temple's desolate. It's deserted, it's empty, it's meaningless, and his guys are drawing attention to the temple buildings. 
If you go into the Gospel writers, Mark and Luke, they give you a little bit more information about what the guys were doing, that they're pointing out how amazing the buildings are, how imposing they are, how beautiful they are. And the guys were right. The historian Josephus records that the buildings were made of white marble stone. They had massive plates of gold on all of the different sides of the building so that the temple just shone every time the sunlight hit it. Josephus goes on to talk about how large the stones were uh, that were used to construct it. He says that some of them measured more than 35 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. That's roughly three-quarters of the footprint of my house. That's one stone. You think that's amazing, unbelievable. And the guys are astounded at this. And they say to Jesus, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what beautiful buildings. They see the beauty and the glory of the buildings. They see the amazing feat of engineering that it took to design and build the temple without modern shaping or moving equipment, and they are impressed, impressed with its beauty and glory. And they can't imagine it being any other way, certainly not desolate. So they speak up gently, pushing back a little, teacher, what wonderful stones. Jesus, verse 2, doubles down. He answers them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. It's a prophecy that came true about 40 years later. Rome came through and destroyed the temple. Jesus looks at exactly the same thing that his disciples are looking at. But he responds to it differently because he sees the same thing, but he sees it in a different context than they're working with. He sees a different future, a different historical outcome. And it's very important because you learn there that the way you see the future then informs how you see the present moment. The way that you think history is going to go teaches you how to respond right here and now. So if you think that human power and beauty will endure, will overcome time and adversity, then you respond one way, teacher, with beautiful stones. But if you know that history is moving in a different direction, you respond differently. Jesus walked with that different sense of where history is going. And he's now going to help us over these next, this next chapter to understand how we can walk in that same understanding. Jesus was not a morose or gloomy person with this different understanding of the world. He was not hopeless, not fearful, definitely not apathetic, fully engaged in his own life, fully engaged in other people's lives, but he was sober in his assessment of how great humanity really is, sober in his assessment of how enduring everything is that it builds. Now, when he announces that not only is the temple desolate, deserted and empty, but also going to be destroyed. His disciples put two and two together, and they get five. They think the temple, the place where atonement is made for us, the place that makes it possible for us to meet with God, the temple will be destroyed, which means what? There will no longer be a need for atonement. Therefore, that must mean what? The end of the age is finally here, that God's judgment will be fully carried out, that the new creation will be fully established. They put two and two together and get five, and Jesus takes those two events and separates them. He separates the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. 
by verse 8, he's saying that what is going to happen is just the beginning of birth pains. That they are mistaken to conflate those two events. That's where he lands. It's not where he starts. Instead, he starts with a warning. It's an odd warning. Go back to verse 3. The disciples believe the end of the temple and the end of the age are linked together. They come to Jesus and say, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They want to know what they should look for that says this is all about to happen. And the very first thing that Jesus has to say to them as they're looking for information, the very first thing he says is, See that no one leads you astray. And that's odd. They want to know how to tell the end is about to happen. He thinks they actually have a bigger need than that information. They need to have a warning not to let themselves go astray. He thinks that the biggest thing they need to know is that there is something inherent in the events leading up to the end that make it easy for people to go astray, to be led astray. And as the rest of the verse makes clear that there is something in the nature of this age in between his first and second coming that can lead people astray from following him. You think, but wait a minute, how is that possible? These guys have been following Jesus. They know him. They know what he's about. They have publicly announced that he is the Messiah. After all this time, how could they possibly be fooled into following someone else? But the same Jesus who predicted that the temple would be destroyed also predicted, verse 5, that many people would be led astray. Many people who looked into him, who accepted that he was the Messiah, who followed him, that many would be led astray. And so that means the disciples have to take him seriously, and it means that you and I have to take him seriously. He's giving this warning not just to them, wrote it down for what? For us. See that no one leads you astray. Now, if you're like me, you're inclined not to take him too seriously. To read this and think, okay, let me do a real quick self-check. Mm, nope, I still think that Jesus is the Messiah. I'm still following him. I guess someone else needs to hear this. Clearly, it's not me. But as Jesus keeps talking, he shows us why he is talking directly to you and to me this morning. He's going to show us three things in this passage that force us to take him and his warning seriously. First, he shows us the context, the background setting of what it's like for you and me to live in the last days. Second, he shows us the danger, the danger that's associated with living in this kind of the world that we do. And third, he shows us the antidote, tells us what we need to know that will help us escape the danger of living at the end of the age. Shows us the context, the danger, and the antidote. First, what's the context of life in this age? Several things, Jesus say, characterize this period of time that we live in. He begins, verse 6, by saying, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. You will hear of wars. Jesus said so. You will hear of people who want what someone else has, who will use every kind of weapon and violence in order to take what they want from someone else, you will hear of wars. It's an insult to the children of the Enlightenment, to the intellectual descendants of the philosophers 
who promised us that humanity is getting better, that it's progressing, that it's developing. You will hear of wars, which means what? War's not going away. Humanity is not getting better. Yes, we are better able to master our environment, but we cannot master ourselves. We're still going to have war. The longing and the lust to control other people, to have what they have, is going to continue. And so what's happening in Europe right now should not surprise us. Jesus told us that these things would take place. They are not okay. They're not acceptable. They should provoke outrage. They should provoke sadness. We have to resist them with every means that we have at our disposal. We have to work for peace and safety for all people to provide for those who have been harmed. But if you think that human effort alone will produce peace and safety, in some very real sense, you're tempted to say, teacher, what big stones? You will hear of wars. Why? Because war-making is not simply an activity. It's a condition of the human heart, of every human heart. Jesus talked earlier in Matthew chapter 5 about how looking at someone lustfully is the same as committing adultery with them in your heart. He says there that the lustful look is the physical expression of the adultery that's already deep inside of you, that the problem does not start with the look. Problems start much earlier, much deeper. Before the look ever took place, it started inside of you in your heart. It's the same reason in that passage where just a few paragraphs earlier, Jesus equated murder with ungodly anger and condescension and insults. He said they deserve the same judgment and they deserve the same punishment. They deserve the fire of hell. <laughs> you think that only makes sense if anger and insults express the same thing that murder does. The longing inside of you to get rid of someone so you never have to deal with them again. Now, for some people, you have to kill them in order to accomplish that result. Other people, you just have to insult, and they will leave your presence and leave you alone. In that sense, these are all different expressions that have the same goal, different expressions that come from the hatred of having to deal with someone that you don't like. War-making is the same. It's not an activity that happens when someone finally crosses an international boundary marker. It happens when that desire is conceived in someone's heart that says, I want what you have, and I will do everything within my power to get it. And there is no power on earth that can tame that desire, that can change the human heart. Jesus says, you will hear of wars. You'll hear of wars as long as there are people on this earth. Secondly, you'll hear of rumors of war. People will either be at war trying to take what belongs to someone else, or they'll be talking about who might be trying to take what belongs to someone else. Talking about who might be planning, discussing, threatening war, trying to take control. Jesus says that this age, in between his first and second comings, is characterized by people thinking and talking constantly about what might happen in the future. If so-and-so is powerful, if they decide to act in such and such a way to get what we think they might be interested in having. Rumors. Things that aren't yet reality, things that are extrapolations of what we think might happen, 
things that haven't yet happened, rumors. Now remember, the world that Jesus is speaking into when he says you'll hear of rumors of wars, it was a pre-modern world. News did not travel super fast in that world, wasn't super abundant, and he says that that world has a problem, that they are going to have to live constantly aware of a populace that is cranked up, set on edge discussing who might do what to whom and when. That problem is vastly magnified in our present day. We're constantly aware. We are always talking about powerful people, about what they're likely to do next, whether or not we think that what they're doing is good. Political leaders, certainly. Military leaders, yes. But there are a lot of other powerful people that we speculate about. People who hold economic power, technological power, celebrity power, have ma massive followings, people who might speak out against things that we like, attempt to control that, or promote things that we don't like. These are people that you've never met. And yet on a daily basis, you are flooded with information about them, about what they're doing, what they're thinking, what they might do. And even though we're flooded, we're never satisfied. And so we regularly check our news feeds and blogs throughout the day, looking for the latest information about who might be getting ready to do what to whom, about who's working behind the scenes to create an advantage for themselves. Rumors, rumors of war that capture us, that we feel a need to know about, to stay on top of, in some cases in the comments section, to contribute to. Jesus said the last days will be characterized by wars and rumors of war, people struggling for control, working hard to defeat any challengers. Verse 7, that nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be wars and rumors of war, but thirdly, there will also be famines and earthquakes in various places, natural disasters. Part of living in the last days before the end of the age means that we cannot escape a disrupted planet, one that is dangerous to human survival. And so there will be famines and earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes and typhoons and flooding and tornadoes, and they're going to be widespread in various places. And there will be pandemics. When Luke records this in chapter 21 of his book, verse 11, he says, there will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. Pestilence, plagues, disease that runs rampant through the human population. About half a year ago, I was in the back, I remember talking with someone who'd come to church. They had not been able to visit for the previous couple weeks because they'd had to quarantine. And we were talking about how hard that is and how disruptive it, it is to your life. And he said to me, I just can't wait until this is over and we can all go back to normal. It's one of those moments where I was trying to be as gentle as I possibly could because this verse from Luke is in the back of my mind. And I said to him, I'm afraid this is normal. We just got used to a world where the blessing of God meant that we didn't have to experience it quite as much. And so we stopped taking Jesus seriously. Now, that does not mean we don't take precautions, that we don't socially distance or wear masks to protect each other, that we don't fund and cheer on companies that are working on vaccines. What it does mean is that we are not surprised 
when another plague breaks through in this world. You're familiar with the big names throughout history, right? Bubonic plague, Ebola, Spanish flu, various other flu strains. Do a really quick little Google search. You'll be amazed at how many there have been that we know of. That's the history of the world up until now. Jesus says it's going to continue to be that way. There will be wars, rumors of wars, natural disasters. And then he says something awful. He says, but it's not the end of the world. Verse 6, the end is not yet. Verse 8, all these are what? They're the beginning of birth pains. These events that we're talking about, these are horrible. You don't want any part of them, but they're just the beginning. And they have no ability to tell you how far off the end is. Jesus uses the metaphor here of birth pains, which are what? Very, very real. I'm told, very, very painful. But of no predictive value in actually establishing an exact time for when the birth will happen. They tell you that one is coming, that one body is about to emerge from another, that that part is absolutely certain. But they tell you nothing about the timing. You have no idea when. And Jesus says the same is true as one creation, the old creation, gives birth to another. You have no idea when it will happen, but these are the indications that it absolutely will. Indications that are incredibly painful, which on the one hand makes sense, right? If the full birth of the new creation requires the judgment of God on evil, then what we are tasting in wars, rumors, natural disasters are what? They are very small tastes of his judgment. It's a regular part of the world we live in, one that is under the judgment of God. And so they're just normal for this age. They're going to continue to be normal. Jesus is telling you to expect them. That's the context in which you live your life. That's point one. On the other hand, you can't talk about this dispassionately. We're talking about the world in which we live. You can't just hear these things and say, oh, well, you know, that's helpful information. Good to know. These things affect you. The pandemic disrupted every single one of your lives, along with nearly 8 billion other lives. Killed almost 6 million people so far that we know of. That affects you. The current war in Europe has killed people who should not have died, whose families should not have mourned them. It's destroyed buildings and property that should still exist. It's involved multiple other nations, wreaked havoc on the world markets, and it affects you. Every time you drive by a gas station, you can see what it's going to cost on one very small, almost insignificant level. It's also taken up your time. You've chased, tried to chase down what is true and what isn't, what is real and what's a rumor. And there are plenty of other rumors out there about other people and countries and how they might use this moment for their own agendas to take what doesn't belong to them. So we can't just step back from these birth pains and pretend to be coldly analytical. We're talking about our lives here, not an interesting philosophical question. And that's what brings us to point two. There is a danger of living in such a world. Look again at verse 6. Jesus says, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. Alarm, that's a word that means to be in a state of fear that's associated with surprise. 
You're in a state of fear when you didn't expect to be. Don't be alarmed, he says. Don't be in a state of surprised fear. Don't be panicked. Don't live in a state of high anxiety. See that you are not alarmed when you hear of wars, rumors, and disasters. And he says that because it's so easy to be alarmed. To read or listen to something about world events and feel alarmed, to feel jacked up because the news is alarming. And also because the way that the news is presented is often alarming. That's not intended simply to provide information to you, but that it intends to create an emotional reaction, an emotional response. It intends to alarm you, to create a certain level of anxiety. You feel that at times, right? You're reading something, you're watching something, and you can feel yourself getting a little emotional. You can feel the anxiety starting to creep up. What is that? It's the way that they're presenting it. That's intentional. Why? Anxiety sells. Fear sells. I was talking to someone this past week who made the comment. It was almost in passing because we weren't talking about the media industry, but he said, yeah, the news tries to make you afraid so that you'll keep coming back for more. I think he's right. It keeps you coming back for more, and it uses fear not only to sell itself, but also to sell a particular solution to the problem. Because if you are sufficiently upset by what you're reading, you are now primed to hear a certain resolution, some relief from the things that upset you. And this is the connecting link to why you might go astray. By living in this world, you can become overly fearful, alarmed by the things you experience or hear about. And if you're not looking to Jesus to deal with the danger and the uncertainty of living here, you will look to something else. And there are always going to be lots of alternatives to look to. Lots of false saviors. Verse 5, Jesus says, many. Many who will come saying, I'm the Christ. I have the solution to the problems of living. Believe in me, trust me, and I will deal with war, rumors, and disasters so that they no longer alarm you. I will bring a measure of peace to this earth that will comfort you. I know the way. Many will come saying, I am the Christ. And when you find yourself in one of those moments of heightened anxiety, it is so easy to say, you got it. <laughs> I trust you. I will back you, support you, listen to you, do whatever you tell me to do. Just make this go away. And in that moment, just like the disciples, what has captured you is the beauty and glory of what humans can do. You see the huge stones that people can bend to their will, and you put your faith and confidence in what? In those stones? In those things that humanity can do? And in those who promise to do those things? And I debated this for a little while. I want to take just a brief aside to clarify something. I, I don't want to water down what Jesus is saying here. There is something here that we need to feel the weight of. At the same time, because we are born into a world of false saviors, it can be hard to hear because we're used to false saviors. And it can almost start to sound like Jesus is saying, this world is bad, it's always going to be bad, there's nothing you can do about it, don't even try, just be apathetic, just don't let yourself get too excited about it. Just, you know, be unfeeling instead. That is not what Jesus is saying here. It's not how he lived. He spoke out against injustice and hypocrisy. He wept when death touched his friends. 
He entered into people's lives and let their suffering impact him so that he could bring some relief to it, some relief to the people who were hurting. He was not hardened, jaded, by the misery of living in the last days. Very, 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 very active in living with the misery, in dealing with the misery. And in doing that, what is he doing? He's reflecting the heart of God who has not abandoned this world. This God who calls us to now be engaged in dealing with suffering and who has given us various ways of doing that. This is the same God who's given us leaders in government. That's the claim of Romans 13 for the book of First Peter. Given us government, why? Because anarchy is worse. Our governments don't always do what's right, but they do exist by God's decree to restrain sin and evil, to make life livable, something that God established, something that we enter into, we listen, we support. Some of us even have positions in government. Or you can think about something like medicine, how it is a God-given practice that aims to alleviate some of the brokenness of our bodies. Or the fields of engineering, technology, manufacturing, waste management, transportation, all the things that provide food and clothing, housing, safe living conditions that have improved the quality of life for a significant percentage of the world's population. All of these disciplines offer real relief to the struggle of living in a world under God's judgment. They're an extension of his goodness to us. And that ought to amaze us. Because after rejecting him and rejecting his ways, we should experience what? None of his goodness. No relief from his judgment, and yet we do. Okay, that's the caveat. That's all true. This is really important. None of these things that we can and must do to address and relieve suffering, none of these things are able to address the underlying problems that produce war rumors and natural disasters. None of these disciplines can fix the human heart. None of them can remake the world so that it's no longer broken. And because we can't get at the underlying cause of evil and brokenness, humanity does not have the power to create a world in which war, rumors, and natural disasters no longer exist. More importantly, we don't have the power to eliminate the source of panic that's actually located in our hearts. See, when you're panicking in the face of war, rumors, and disasters, what is your heart saying? It's saying, do not trust God with your life. Because somehow, something is about to happen to you that's going to ruin your life. Something that will be so bad, you're not going to be able to recover from it. Don't trust him. Trust something else. Trust something that is more tangible, that feels more real. <laughs> something that is more attractive than a Jesus who says, life on this planet is always going to be hard and chaotic and life-threatening. Now, pick up your cross. Be prepared to die and follow me as I walk on the road to my own death. You think, that sounds horrible. Who wants to hear that? Doesn't that just take the panic and crank it up a little bit more? These false saviors, these many false saviors do what? They come in at that moment and they sound so much better. They promise that they can save you and protect you from the ugliness of living in this planet. If only you'll listen to them and do what they say. And it is so easy in that moment to put your full weight and confidence into them, and you'd almost get taken in, right? It would be possible in that moment to be led astray if you didn't step back and say, huh, 
the world is still now what Jesus said it was going to be 2,000 years ago. Despite all the many would-be saviors who have come and gone since then, he is right, and they weren't. But then what's the solution? How do we deal with these birth pains that aren't going away? How do we not give in to panic and alarm? How do we not get led astray looking for some relief from anyone who will promise a little, us a little heaven on earth? Here's the antidote, point three. You have to resolve in your heart and mind that this must take place. Verse six, see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Now notice how that little phrase works, that this must take place. Jesus sandwiches it in between two other things, telling us not to be alarmed, even though the end is not yet here. This is the antidote, then, to being alarmed while you live in a world full of alarming things. The antidote is to realize, to internalize, this must take place. Now understand what Jesus is saying there. He's not saying, this is the way it is. Ugly things just randomly happen on this messed up planet. What are you going to do? He's not fatalistic. He says this must take place. There is no option. It has to take place. It's necessary. There's purpose here. That's language that says nothing happens on this planet in a way that's ever an accident. Nothing's outside of God's control. Instead, it has to be this way. And so even when evil looks like it's in control, that's an illusion. God is in control, and he will take even these alarming, fearful things and work them into his plan. And if you think about it, you realize, yeah, this is the way it has to be. Because the only alternative is to remove sin and evil from this planet. But to do that, God's going to have to remove all the sources of sin and evil, which means what? He's going to remove you and me. And I know that's hard for modern people to accept. Because we have such a weak view of evil, and consequently we then have a weak view of how to deal with evil. We think we can draw lines between evil and evil, that we can say if there's only a little evil, little badness, we can tolerate that and not get too upset by it. We think that there's this line out there and that everything on the one side is okay. It might not be great, but it's okay. We'll tolerate it and not act until what? Until evil crosses this line. But remember where war starts. It doesn't start with an action, a line crossed. It starts with a desire, one that comes from the human heart that says, I want to control you, and I want to have what you have for myself. Now, when does that impulse first make itself known? Don't you see that with, very pe with people who are very young, not super developed at that point, not full-scale war-making, but it's clearly there when one child grabs another child's toy, toy during a play date, or when your child demands all of your time and attention that you really do need to give to someone else, or when later you, you discover that someone takes your boyfriend or girlfriend because they wanted that person for themselves, or even later at school, at work, when someone else takes credit for your idea. Those things don't get our attention in the same way that an armed invasion does, but they spring from the same root, the root of wanting what someone else has. 
And so if you're going to eliminate war and war making on the earth, you have to eliminate anyone who has ever engaged in it in any way at this level of desire. <laughs> but if you do that, then obviously there's nobody left. If God chose to judge all war makers a thousand years ago, there's not one of us that would be in this room because our ancestors would not have made the cut. Wars, rumors, disasters, false messiahs must take place if God's larger purposes of populating eternity with images of God is going to take place. See, you can't have it both ways. You can either have an absence of war now with no one that God brings into his family because there's no one to bring into it, or you can have a new creation that is glorious, that is bursting with human beings from every tongue, tribe, and nation who must be born into a very troubled and dangerous world. The only way for God to have his desire, this full and abundant and overflowing eternity, is to be patient now, hold back his full judgment on evil so that people can continue to be born, which means that these things must take place. Why should you not be alarmed? Why not panic? Because anything that might alarm you fits fully into God's greater plan, a plan that will produce every good thing for you that you could ever want. There is not a thing that God lets you encounter in this world, not war, not rumors, not disasters. There's not a thing that will jeopardize his incredible plan for you. You don't need to be alarmed. You can trust him because of what he's doing now to bring you into a world that you're going to love. But you can also trust him because of what he's already done. When Jesus said that the temple was now desolate, it was because it was no longer the center of the relationship between God and his people. That center now shifted to Jesus. He was now the center of the relationship between God and his people, the mediating place where God could meet with his people and not destroy them. A mediating place that first had to be destroyed. Jesus knew that, that that must take place. Some people challenged him when he drove out everyone who was buying and selling sacrifices in the temple. They wanted to know whose authority he was acting on, and his response to them was, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They thought he was talking about the great big towering building of golden stone. He was speaking about his own body, that he, the center of the relationship between God and his people, would be completely and utterly destroyed because this had to be. Jesus was more beautiful than anything in all creation. He's the source of any beauty that's in creation. All came from his mind. All came from his desires for beauty. And God allowed the most beautiful, precious being to be ruined, crushed for our iniquities, because this had to take place to rescue his people. Jesus was more solid and more enduring, more indestructible, than any massive stone in creation. He's the one who is big enough to make all the stones and everything else in creation. There's no power in creation, no created power that could destroy him unless he allowed it, which he did, because this had to take place to rescue his people. He is both the Prince of Peace and the Lord of Lords who allowed others to make war on him and defeat him because this had to take place 
to rescue his people. And Jesus didn't panic, wasn't alarmed. He knew the horror of what he was facing, the unbearable heat of God's wrath. He faced God's righteous war against our sin in himself, knew that his father would turn away from him. Things he did not want to experience, cried out to God, please take this away if it's possible. But when God said no, Jesus didn't panic. He accepted that this had to take place to rescue his people. Embraced all of that, let people tear down the temple that was his body. Why? So that something else could be birthed into this world other than war and rumors and disasters. So that you could be birthed into this world physically. So that you could be reborn spiritually into the new creation so that one day you can meet God and not be alarmed by him, not panicked by him, not panicked because of the war-making that you know is true in your own heart, because you know that he will not make war on you, so that we will never know what it's like to have God be at war with us. We will never face a single disaster that will derail his purposes for us. Jesus went through everything that he did so that we would never really understand what that was because we're never going to experience it. He took the biggest hit so that you never would. He knew that he had to do that to, and that that had to take place. And that means what? You can trust him now when he thinks that the smaller hits in your life must also take place. You can trust him Having paid for him, you know you matter to him. You know that he's not going to let anything into your life except only what is absolutely necessary, only what must take place. And so you and I can trust him regardless of what happens to us in this world. We can face the danger and uncertainty of living now. We can trust his mercy to include us in his good plans so that one day we will live in a world that has no evil, but that does have each and every one of those who follow him. Lord Jesus, thank you. And not only have you, God, withheld your full judgment from this earth so that we could be born, but Jesus, that you took the full weight and burden and wrath of God so that we could be reborn, so that we could know not simply that we matter to you, but know that you shepherd us in our lives even when life is uncertain. Lord God, allow our hearts and our minds to turn to you away from the things that would send us into alarm that might panic us. Turn our hearts and our minds away from all of the many false saviors. Let us run to you and love you because, Lord, no one else has ever done even close to what you've done for us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for your rescue. In Jesus' name, amen.